The Athletic. Tottenham's advantage is gone. Chelsea slip at Forest while both Liverpool and Manchester United make ground. January editions could be crucial, but the race for the top four is well and truly on. I'm Ian Irving and this is the Athletic Football Podcast. They are putting together the building blocks of what you expect modern football clubs to play, which tends to be play settle possession, press high up the field, counter press when you lose the ball, and then break in numbers and run it behind defences where possible. He replaced a Champions League winning coach who many fans felt was brutally and unfairly sacked. And that's not Graham Potter's fault, but it's part of the context here and it's making his life harder. Joe Felix is a name that we're starting off the year by talking about and I suspect uh, it will be bandied around for quite a lot longer. Everyone at Stamford Bridge is, is keenly aware that they need a midfield succession plan. Happy New Year and thank you for joining us on the Athletic Football Podcast with the Premier League now back in full swing. I'm joined by the Athletics' Carl Anker and Liam Toomey as we focus on the race for the Champions League. Hello, gentlemen. Um, Carl, I'll start with you because it was probably, out of everyone, the best weekend, the best start to the new year for the club that you cover, Manchester United. And um, it was nice of Marcus Rashford to join us, wasn't it? Yep. Yep, who among us hasn't slept through their alarm in the post-Christmas, New Year's uh, grey area? Uh, it's, it's turned out to be quite a good couple of weeks for, for Manchester United players. Eric Ten Hag sent more than a dozen players over to the World Cup and they've all seemed to have come back in good nick and, and in decent form. Um, and Manchester United, while there are some obvious weaknesses in the squad in terms of personnel and quality, He's getting a tune out of the most important individuals and, and things seem to be going in a positive direction. It couldn't have worked out much better for Eric Ten Hag, really, could it? Because that whole scenario could play out a very different way, Liam, if you punish a player who is your most informed player and you end up losing the game and he doesn't come on and score the winner. It just could be so different, that, that whole story, really. Yeah, and particularly when you set that against the context of how Manchester United started the season and how they looked with 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 Ronaldo kind of sniping from the sidelines. But all credit to Eric Ten Hag. I think he's very quietly and very calmly diffused what was a pretty big ticking ticking bomb, and he's done his work on the coaching pitch, hasn't he? He's got the rest of this team into a structure that makes sense, and they've got. I know they don't have as much goal scoring as they want, but they have. At least one more reliable goal scorer than Chelsea do right now, uh, which in the standard of the top four races is not nothing. And you've got guys even on the on the periphery like Alejandro Garnacho, who's coming in now and beginning to show signs of maybe being able to offer something. So I think he's. You can definitely see the beginnings of what Ten Hag is trying to do, and it certainly seems now, particularly with the ownership situation at United, his authority couldn't be more total. Carl, in terms of the way the team's playing as well, you've got individuals in that squad shining who haven't shined for a while or who haven't shined before. Uh, and there's real leaders stepping forward. Rafael Varane in defence, Casemiro in midfield, Marcus Rashford up front. How much do you give the credit to Eric Ten Hag for making this work? Oh, pretty much all of it. You consider the deep malaise and dysfunction Manchester United have fallen into this time last year under the interim 
stint of Ralph Rangnick, who was more entertaining in press conferences than he was on the football field. There were players in this summer who I couldn't make heads or tails of on Talk of the Devils, the Manchester United podcast. We had a big sort of shrug about what is Diogo Dallo good at? Uh, and now he's turned out to be <laughs> pretty much a steady Eddie modern fullback. He's, he's I don't good know who all- was saying that, Carl. I've no idea. <laughs> he's good at all the things you want a modern fullback to do. He, yes, he's probably could be upgraded upon and probably could use another backup, but he's he's good at that. Uh, and I think Ten Hag is good at figuring out the profiles of his players and, and getting good at that. I'd say the, the best way to describe Eric Ten Hag's transformation is that in previous seasons, it could be quite hard to articulate how Manchester United scored goals. You'd say United scored goals because Bruno Fernandes had a Hail Mary pass or they won a penalty. Whereas now you say, how do Manchester United score goals? You know, like, oh, Bill from the back and Chris Eriksen tends to pass this way and that brings in Marcus Rashford into play and then that opens up space for Anthony Martial to run in behind and et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. They are putting together the building blocks of what you expect modern football clubs to play, which tends to be play settle possession, press high up the field, counter press when you lose the ball and then break in numbers and run in behind defences where possible. United into fourth after their win and Tottenham losing to Aston Villa Liam, it's a story we've seen before with Antonio Conte. He can be extremely emotional. I'm sure you saw that during your time covering him at Stamford Bridge. But this issue for Spurs in defence, I mean, they've conceded two or more goals in seven straight Premier League matches now for the first time in Premier League history. They've been two goals down in six of the last seven matches as well. That's really poor for a a team of, of this standard and a coach of that standard as well. Yeah, and it's quite uncharacteristic based on my experience of Antonio Conte teams. They don't generally struggle to start games with the right intensity. They can occasionally fall behind. I mean, we have at least seen the resilience, not against Villa, but more recently they have been coming back a lot, which is a staple of Conte teams. They've sort of needed to, haven't they? (laughs) Yeah, they've given themselves so much work to do and dug themselves so many holes. It's not normal to see a Conte team give so much to the opposition in terms of chances, mm. in terms of clear chances. And it did seem quite comfortable for Villa. I did watch that game. It did seem very, very comfortable for for them to, to just kind of set up to frustrate Spurs, give Spurs the ball. We know Conte doesn't tend to favour the most sort of creative profile of midfielder and, and the system can be a bit mechanical at times. Uh, they they tend to kind of set up to prey on the opposition's mistakes rather than proactively carving them open. And I, I think uh, Kulisevsky not being in this team is a big blow as well because he does bring some of that final third creativity when they need it. They just seem to have no real ideas. From what you've seen of Antonio Conte and your experience of, of covering closely, does he turn this around? It's really hard to say because he's already acting like late-stage Conte off the pitch, but it feels like he's been acting like late-stage Conte since he got to Tottenham, <laughs> which is that. very, very strange. It, you know, it, it's kind of a... He's been at war may, the whole time almost, hasn't he? Yeah, this might be something that the more fatalistic Tottenham fans would feed into, but it felt like they got the bad of Mourinho without the good, and now they're getting the bad of Conte, another former Chelsea coach, without the good. Because when by the time Conte started lobbing verbal grenades at the board in press conferences, Chelsea fans viewed it differently because he had the goodwill built up by a really impressive Premier League title win, still the the last Premier League title that Chelsea have won or even got close to. So he he had real credibility when he was turning around saying, I haven't got the players, what more can I do? But when he's saying that at Tottenham, he's saying that to a fan base that haven't shared those moments with him. They haven't had 
something to to bond with him over really nothing nothing substantial anyway so they just see him as a as a moaner i think and and just why aren't you getting on with the you, you may not have you know the squad that you would dream of having but you've got a very talented squad still i remember this towards the end of his time at chelsea it became a cause of institutional fatigue conte's daily demeanor it just wears on everyone him constantly saying that he hasn't got enough, him constantly seeming like he's in a bad mood. And by the end, as great as he was for Chelsea at his, his peak, they were relieved to be rid of him, especially the board were relieved to be rid of him. And I, I just wonder how Daniel Levy's feeling about all of this because that contract still isn't signed for beyond this season. Pochettino's there, Tuchel's there. I think Tuchel would be very interested in the Tottenham job. Um, not another ex-Chelsea manager. <laughs> it would fit with recent tradition, wouldn't it, Carl? But um, I, I do think Tuchel wants to stay in London if possible. And I, I, I think he's waiting to see what happens at Tottenham. But there are really high calibre alternatives there. And I think if if Levy looks at this and, and, and thinks, you know what, I, I've done all I can reasonably do to try and help this man build a, a competitive team within the sort of confines of what Tottenham's resources are and, and all I'm getting is complaints and substandard results. I, I wouldn't be surprised if, if there was a parting at the end of the season. The thing is with Tottenham, Carl, as well, they're not in that bad a position, are they? They've only just dropped out of the top four with the results over the weekend. I know the form recently has not been good, like we've just been talking about, and clearly the mood isn't either. But if Conte is saying it was a miracle getting them in the top four last season, which he said after defeat to Villa, it's not like they're a million miles away from... A miracle again, is it? <laughs> yes. Uh, and that's with the upward inflection the league, the question mark. The league mark, table maybe? doesn't say that. The league table doesn't say that. But the league table and Spurs have been bizarre all season. Um, before the North London derby, I was asked along with a bunch of athletic journalists who they thought would do better out of Arsenal and Spurs. Uh, and I was of the opinion of Arsenal playing very well, but it looks like they're playing 100%. Whereas Spurs are doing decent, but it looks like they're only 65% trucking. So... I expected Spurs to press the button, get better and, and leap above Arsenal. That's turned out to be completely wrong. And Arsenal that, fans... That might rem- not happen. Yeah. That's not happening. Arsenal no. are definitely going to finish the table above Spurs. Arsenal fans remind me of this every single day now. Thank you very much. <laughs> they um, definitely will now. Oh yeah, trust me. Uh, and I think that's been the curious thing with Spurs in that they weren't playing very good, but they were getting results. Uh, so the Brentford game is a very good example. They went 2-0 down and looked absolutely awful. And then they nearly got the winner to turn it to 3-2 all of a sudden. So the the two options everyone thought was, well, either the performances begin to match the league table and Spurs begin to upward climb up the table or the results eventually match the performances and Spurs begin their downward descent. The way we're talking and the way Conte appears to be behaving, it seems as if the latter is going to happen. It seems as if that these performances, these going down a goal early, things will see Spurs begin a small or slow decline down this table. I think the amount of times Tottenham and Tottenham fans have said, oh, we need Kulaveski. Oh, my apologies if I'm mispronouncing his name. You can't be that reliant on one player to get you into top four places. You you need to have a, a plan greater than a 22-year-old winger to, to make it all tick. This is really concerning how much this Tottenham team doesn't play like an Antonio Conte team. They don't dominate any phase of play. They're not particularly strong in defence, despite having a lot of defenders who are very good on paper. Their midfield is meant to be combative and meant to win the ball 
and then immediately release the forwards and they can do one or they can do the other. Like you rarely see them do both and over the course of 90 minutes, you know, despite the one or two games where Bentacore and Hoiberg have suddenly turned into Perlo. And Son seems to be going through, you know, the reverse of a purple patch. He, he's, he's not finishing or beating wide players in the way he used to. So He scored in one Premier League game this season. It was a hat-trick, admittedly, but he's only scored in one Premier League game. It's quite concerning if you're a Tottenham Hotspur fan. Mm. Liam, the, the thing with this, uh, and I'm going to move it on to talk about Chelsea and, and Liverpool in a moment, but if you're Tottenham's players and you're being told publicly by your manager, whether directly or indirectly, that you're not good enough, surely eventually you just believe it, don't you? Well, or you start to believe that this coach isn't the right one for you. You tend to go one way or the other, I think, as a as a top well, player. And neither of those are positive, are they? No, certainly not for the team and not for results, not for performances, individual So why do you think he does it? I think he's doing it primarily to kind of, well, send a message to the board, obviously. He's always playing games in terms of the window is open and, the, and, the, yeah. and he wants to try and put pressure on Daniel Levy to spend. But I think there's also an element of, you know, Antonio Conte sees himself as a winner, as someone who succeeds everywhere he goes. And part of that, the way you insulate yourself from failure is you dissociate yourself from it. I'm not the problem here. And I think, you know, Jose Mourinho is probably the most notorious for that. But I think there is a bit of that with Conte as well, that he does sometimes give the impression that he's just washing his hands of something. Okay, let's talk Liverpool then, Carl. They're the next ones in action. They've sort of recovered, haven't they, Liverpool? Watching the game against Leicester, it, it was just a very confusing mix of everything for them, wasn't it? The the patterns of play seem to be a bit better. Defensively, they still look a little shaky. They're creating lots of chances, which Mohamed Salah and Darwin Nunez seem to conspire to miss. I saw a stat yesterday. Nunez has missed 14 big chances. And no one has missed more in the Premier League. And in second place is Mohamed Salah with 12. I, I was really surprised by that. There's still a feeling that if they can just get it together, they're, they're well in this top four race still, aren't they? Yeah, and I think the operative word was they've sort of figured it out. Yeah. Um, so the, the front three seems to be working-ish. I have now reached the point where if Darwin Nunez is one and one on goal, I'm not going to get out of my seat. I'm thoroughly expecting that shot to be pulled wide. Um, just needs Vout Face to follow it in, that's all. I was... Really surprised why he ran so hard. It, it was a, the anyway. first goal must have been in his head, mustn't yeah. it? He must have just panicked after that first one. They're two of the most spectacular on goals that you'll ever see. And to do it, what were they, about seven minutes apart or something? Incredible. Utterly remarkable. Uh, in terms of defence, the defence is gettable. I'd say it, it's get still... did you say? Get-attable, get-attable. Yeah. You, they, you can get, you, they can be got at. Uh, I think the real concern for for Liverpool, uh, and many Liverpool fans will tell you this, is is the central midfield. Uh, Fabinho played pretty well in the League Cup game against Manchester City, but his season hasn't been anywhere near the standards he set previously. Jordan Henderson played as the number six, the deepest midfielder against Leicester City, and he can't do that anymore, to be brutal with you. The amount of injuries he's accumulated has has taken away a little bit of zip behind him. uh, And Henderson, when he did play as one of the wider midfielders in that three his big job was dropping deep when Trent Alexander-Arnold went forward to cover that space uh, and Henderson's not as mobile which means they're a little bit more porous in midfield in central midfield and he just can't get back to cover Trent in the way he used to Thiago is in and out all the time but he's all, again Thiago's not the 
most defensively minded player. He's fantastic in defending in that he's very secure on the ball, but don't really ask him to tackle. That's the big problem. And that's a problem that's not going to get addressed this January transfer window. Cody Gakpo is going to come in and come play on the left-hand side, which I think frees up Darwin to play centrally. Or Cody could inevitably be play as a sort of false nine, drop really, really deep. And you can have Darwin and Salah pin back the two uh, in that heart, in the half spaces. That could possibly mm-hmm. work if you use Gakpo as a Firmino-type figure. So Klopp has solutions, but the, the problem list is slightly bigger. And we're seeing this Liverpool team go from a team that dominated all phases of play and was quite secure in defence, midfield and attack to one that's just gone, all right, well, we haven't really got the midfield options. Let's just make games highly chaotic and hope we can outpunch them. It's not going to be boring to watch, I'll give you that. No, that is definitely true. Speaking of boring to watch, Liam, you've been very patient, sat there waiting to talk about Chelsea. They do seem a little dull at the moment, don't they, the team that you cover? It's just not quite not quite working under Graham Potter, is it? I've been on the edge of my seat this entire podcast waiting to talk about the, the, the entertainers of the Premier League. Yeah. Um, no, it's not a functioning team at this point in time. And they seem to have reached a stage where they cannot play well without Reese James, which is a big, big problem. I mean, they've always been quite dependent on width from, well, it was the wing backs when they were playing with a, with a back three. Now it's full backs when they play with a back four. But without that, Jorginho doesn't get the passing angles in midfield to avoid being overrun. The front line still flatters to, to deceive individually, collectively. And it's it's a big problem. You look at all the advanced metrics in the attacking half of the pitch, Chelsea are a bottom half team in terms of chances created. You know, they're, they're, they're not underperforming their XG. They're, they're, there's no sort of hidden story here. Uh, they're not wasting a load of chances. They're just not creating many. And at the same time, you look at a midfield that I think is, is clearly in need of a, of a refresh. And you've got a defence where, I mean, you look at the back four, they started against Nottingham Forest. The centre-back pairing has a, has an aggregate age of 71. And you've got Cesar Pilaqueta playing right back, who, who probably isn't able to play big minutes in the Premier League at this stage of his career, at least not in that position. And overall, I think there's an issue with Chelsea where they've allowed this squad to get to a point where every team they play against, they give up physical and athletic advantages all over the pitch. And that's that means... That's not Chelsea either, is it? That's not well, modern it's, Chelsea. It's not what the match-going Chelsea fans associate with Chelsea. Exactly. The idealised Chelsea team to them is still Drogba, Lampard, Essien, Balak, Terry, you know, there's this really strong team. The team, bullies. the bullies, the bullies, not the bullied. And Chelsea yeah. now regularly get bullied. We've seen this particular away game. Yes, they didn't lose to Forest, but they could easily have done. Um, and we've seen this particular away game with increasing regularity before Graham Potter. This is a this is a bigger problem than just him, and it's to do with the profile of this squad. It's also why they part of the reason why they um, depend on James so much, because as well as being the best technical footballer probably in the team. He brings a physicality to his position that they just lack in so many other areas. And and when you when you give up those advantages to almost every team you play against, you don't have to be far off it technically to look way off it. You only need a slight off day or for confidence to be slightly low 
to suddenly just be losing losing battles all over the pitch and uh, and every team in the Premier League the worst team in the Premier League is still capable of playing in a low block countering with speed and bringing a bit of physical intensity that's the that's the bare minimum that a Premier League team can do and and often Chelsea struggled to cope with that you hear it a lot when a new manager's not quite sort of found his rhythm yet does he know his best team does he know his best starting 11 but with Potter it almost seems like does he know his best team? Does he know his best formation? Does he know the best style of play to get the best out of these players? Um, we'll talk in a little while about Chelsea adding to the mix as well, but yet more players doesn't necessarily solve the problem for him because he's struggling, it seems, to find the right formula with all the options he's got already. He's learning on the job at this level, which was always going to be the likely outcome. You know, And it doesn't mean Graham Potter isn't going to be a top coach, an elite coach, but it just means that right now, there are some growing pains and he's doing that in a situation where he doesn't have goodwill. He has it from the owners. Um, mm. From everything we hear, he has it from the owners. He has the backing of a long contract, but he doesn't have the goodwill from the fans because he replaced a Champions League winning coach who many fans felt was brutally and unfairly sacked. And that's not Graham Potter's fault, but it's part of the context here and it's making his life harder. The fact that there there is still there are still a lot of fans mourning Thomas Tuchel, um, and it doesn't help either. And again, this is not necessarily Graham Potter's fault. This is just who he is. But he's not the most outwardly charismatic figure. The one worrying thing in this sort of context is it, it with Chelsea struggling on the pitch, and then and then Graham Potter comes out and says, "Well, the effort was there. You know, Nottingham Forest made it difficult for us." It all sounds a bit David Moyesish at Manchester United <laughs> and that's not a comparison that you want you know that that that, that sounds quite quite brutal but he has to yeah. talk talking like a Chelsea coach is just as important as winning like a Chelsea coach I think that's part of the growing that Graham Potter has to do in this job but it's the it's just the the growing process is quite painful at the moment yeah at least the fixtures are getting easier for Chelsea though Manchester City in the league and then Manchester City in the FA Cup next. But having considered the runners in the top four race, next we're going to get into the impact that the January transfer window might have on the race for the Champions League right here on the Athletic Football Podcast. everyone else is winding down for Christmas, the Athletics Club podcasts are firing back up over the festive period to celebrate the return of domestic football. Catch Talk of the Devils, Handbrake Off, The Phil Hay Show and all your favourite club shows. None of that World Cup nonsense is behind us. All are free to listen to, of course, on Apple, Spotify and wherever you get your podcasts. This episode is brought to you by Michelob Ultra, the official beer sponsor of the NBA. Want to get closer to the game than ever before? Michelob Ultra Courtside is giving fans the chance to win exclusive NBA prizes and experiences like official gear, courtside seats to an NBA game, and more. Head over to MichelobUltra.com courtside to learn more. Ian Irving here with Liam Toomey and Carl Anker on the Athletic Football Podcast. Right, having considered the current state of play then in the race for the Champions League, let's get into the impact that the opening of the transfer window could have. And joining us to do exactly that, it's our football correspondent, David Ornstein. David, 
You love January, don't you? You're always a busy man around this time of year. And the name on everyone's lips, it seems, is Jao Felix. Um, there's an article on The Athletic that people can go and read that you've contributed to with Dermot Corrigan. But how likely is this that we could see him arriving in the Premier League this month? Yeah, there's a good chance, Ian, because he's available for transfer um, via Atletico Madrid. And by that, we think alone, um, because he signed for them for such expense and there's still a long time left on his contract that nobody's going to pay the sort of transfer fee that Atletico Madrid would want for a permanent deal. Um, Although never say never with these things. It's a loan that is being offered by Atletico uh, via George Mendes, his agent, and uh, the interest is being garnered. Um, and the most interested parties so far, um, unsurprisingly, come from the Premier League. I, I heard early on, actually, at, while we were still at the World Cup in Doha, that Paris Saint-Germain uh, may be in the mix as well. But um, <laughs> when you speak to enough? people... Are, yeah, well, there you go. So it's an embarrassment of riches there. And and uh, the more people you speak to, it, it becomes quite clear that um, although many clubs would be interested in a player of this quality, as things stand, it's Arsenal and Manchester United or Manchester United and Arsenal. I'm not giving any order there to, to get people too excited um, who are showing the most concrete interest um, and that they have expressed that to Atletico Madrid. Um, but the problem is the... Uh, the finances involved because he is worth so much on the books of Atletico Madrid that they're going to seek to recoup a, a heavy amount of that. Um, they want a 15 million euros loan fee plus his salary for six months, which is thought to be 6 million euros gross. So a 21 million euros package as things stand. Now, the likes of Manchester United and Arsenal are believed to be willing to pay less than half of that for the loan fee and yes. then the the salary in addition. That means there's a chasm um, and that will need to be breached if he is going to be joining one of those clubs or probably any. And that means Atletico Madrid are going to have to come down or uh, his suitors are going to have to come up. Maybe they would come up a little bit, but Atletico will need to come down significantly. I've got a feeling that George Mendes is going to try and work his magic. The month is only just getting started. There's a long way to go. Many talks and negotiations to be had. And it's a deal I could see happening because he's an attacker who, one, is high quality, two, is versatile, can play along the front line and, and has shown himself to be of high level at club and international stage. Uh, and three, he's available and, and he's these clubs need those positions. You know, in the case of Manchester United, they want a striker as their priority for this window, but because of the sale process, they're only in the market for loans. Arsenal have an injury to Gabriel Jesus. And also if the likes of Bukayo Saka or Gabriel Martinelli were to be injured, they'd be thin in those attacking positions as they try and push on for the league title with their dominant position in the Premier League table, Manchester United pushing for a, a top four finish themselves. And so somebody like João Felix is always going to be considered. Um, Chelsea, a team who have been mentioned a lot, I don't think they're one of the front runners, but again, they're, position they're considering that part of the field. And so João Felix is a name that we're starting off the year by talking about, and I suspect uh, it will be bandied around for quite a lot longer. Yeah, it's only the 2nd of January, isn't it? So we've got quite a while to go yet on this one, I think. Carl, in terms of adding Jao Felix to the mix, it's a question 
that relates to Manchester United, but also Arsenal. Both teams at the moment seem to have found something. Certainly Arsenal have found the right blend, a harmony, a togetherness. Uh, Mikel Arteta has, has got them playing exactly how he wants, it seems. Eric Ten Hag maybe less so, but heading in the right direction. Dropping a, a Felix bomb into the middle of that, how does that go for either team? <laughs> I'm not sure if it's a Felix bomb so much as a decent-sized pebble. Um, he's an exceptional football player, one who the tactical fit of him at Atletico Madrid was always questioned. Felix was regarded by many as being a fantastic on-the-ball creator and someone you could run an entire attack through if you weren't the best football team. And if you put him in a very good football team, he could be a fantastic garnish. At this Atletico Madrid team, he's sort of become, you know, they say master the dark arts, but there have been times where he's playing for Atletico Madrid and he's, he's been playing essentially left wing back because of the way Diego Simeone wants to play uh, and because so much of Atletico Madrid involves defensive movement and off the ball solidity. We still don't know the best version of Jao Felix because I don't think he's, well, I don't think he's been put in the best club or the best platform to succeed. You know, there's still question marks over what his best position is. He spent, uh, I think, say like 70% of last season uh, up front and then a little bit as a number 10, but there's still question marks as to whether that can go on the right-hand side or whatnot. So he's good and there's so much potential to him that's still yet to be unlocked. Um, David, can I ask, do you know if any potential loan deal would have an option to make permanent? So the option hasn't been mentioned to me um, and that's why the clubs who are interested are so keen to pay such a lower fee than Atletico are proposing because if you don't win anything at the end of it, then it's really just money spent on a player to help you fulfil your aims for the next six months. And a 21 million euro package is feels extortionate for just six months. Whether a loan option or obligation comes into play at some point, let's see how the window develops. I'd be surprised given the investment that Atletico uh, placed in him. Or if there is an option, it's probably too high for the clubs who are looking at him. Manchester United aren't looking at permanent deals at the moment. Uh, Arsenal have Gabriel Jesus to come back. And I'm not sure if Jao Felix would be part of their wider plan. Although uh, a number of people have mentioned this could be like a bit of a Martin Odegaard deal where you sort of help revive his career and uh, he goes on to prove a great success. But yeah, it's just being looked at from what I hear as a loan deal and with Arsenal looking and being backed by their ownership to press on for the title, that may be this sort of garnish that you're talking about. And Manchester United, um, they're moving in a positive direction, but there is a feeling and Eric Ten Hag surely harbours this, that they can't only rely on the attacking resources they've got at the moment if they want to fulfil those ambitions between now and the end of the season. Liam, David mentioned before that Chelsea may well be interested in Felix. Your colleague Simon Johnson's written a piece that's on The Athletic that mentions Fernandez, Bellingham, McAllister, and there's yet more where that came from as well. It's going to be a busy month for you as well. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, Chelsea had significant surgery to do on the squad post-takeover last summer, and given the way a lot of that spending has panned out so far, I don't think you'd look at Chelsea's squad and say it's much further along. And in particular... Everyone at Stamford Bridge is, is keenly aware that they need a midfield succession plan in particular. You have Angola Kante out of contract at the end of the year. Of course, we've reported that there's there's been positive progress towards an extension there, but Chelsea know they can't rely on him to play every week anymore. 
Um, Jorginho may well not be at the club next season, and he's been such he's been so fu- fundamental to Chelsea's midfield identity since 2018. Uh, so they need something big, and that's why they're looking at big things. Whether it's in this window with possibly Enzo Fernandez or, or the summer, we know that they they are in the Bellingham, Bellingham sweepstakes. I'm, I'm not sure they're at the front, <laughs> but they they are very much looking at sort of midfield conductors and just high level all round midfielders as they're, they're they're looking for a new new balance and a new identity in that area of the pitch. David, how close are they to adding to their squad, Chelsea? Yeah, just on Felix, I would say that um, Chelsea are not front runners because if they are going to bring in a, a central striker, it would probably be a more penalty box poacher, as we're being told, rather than that sort of um, false nine guy who can play across the front line. But let's see on that. As I said, it will come down to the price. Chelsea's mix, as Simon makes clear in this piece, around midfield it depends largely on the other clubs in this merry-go-round because many of them are interested in or chasing the same names so Enzo Fernandez is the player who Chelsea are really prioritizing at the moment however they won't do so at any cost they have a valuation we're being told that they don't want to go to the figures that are being bandied around which is essentially his release clause of 127 million euros they believe that's far above the market value on what's a relatively small sample size of games the world cup and um, a handful of matches for uh, Benfica Um, but they do really like him they love him um, and he's a player they would like to sign on their conditions and they're not going to be held to ransom on that there's a lot of agendas at play in this market and that's why a lot of the stories around him have come out publicly. It's in the interest of people to get that figure as high as possible. If Chelsea can get it at the value that they want, then I think they'll do the deal now or in the summer or if they have to wait until the summer, if they do something now for the summer or if they walk away completely, then they will as far as we know. And that's because they have other options. The Jude Bellingham race is one, as Liam says, they're in. Um, However, how far in we don't know because Jude Bellingham is likely to be a a summer transfer he'll have his pick of the clubs it will largely be down to his decision um, and then up to the the club uh, who he chooses to to meet the price and you suspect that given his unique talent um, the interested parties will all be prepared to go there whether it be Real Madrid Liverpool Manchester City Chelsea or anybody else indeed if the move is not right for him. He and his family are confident enough and calm enough from what we hear to, to decide to stay. But I do think a move is, is starting to look likely for him. Elsewhere in the Chelsea mix, you've got Declan Rice, who they retain admiration for. You've got Moises Caicedo, uh, they like at Brighton. You've got um, Romeo Lavia, who they made an inquiry for on deadline day last summer. Uh, Alexis McAllister in the mix, that's come out in the media as well. Although reports of it being a, a deal worth potentially £60 million, we're told Chelsea placed a valuation on him around £30 to £40 million. And the word from Stamford Bridge is that they're going to be disciplined in their recruitment, despite all of these stories and all of these names and, and all of this hype, which is coming because they are speaking to clubs, they are speaking to agents, they are in this market with both feet. We do expect Chelsea to bring in at least one midfielder via the market, whether it be now and or in the summer. I hope everyone's keeping up. Liam, (laughs) (laughs) you've got to write about all this as well every week. (laughs) And that's just one position. Absolutely. I just wanted to check whether you've heard this, David, that Chelsea have asked Brighton if they can buy the words and Hove Albion 
Well, well. <laughs> in addition to half of their squad, it's expected to be another very busy month. And we were already beginning to hear noises towards the end of the World Cup, largely regarding younger players. We've already seen the David Datro Fofana deal has been mm-hmm. done. Chelsea will sign Andre Santos from Vasco as well. He's he's not the midfielder David's talking about, I don't think, but he's Just he's another, another one, one of these young He's another one of these young elite projects that um, the Bowley Clear Lake ownership have, have prioritised since coming in. So there's there's kind of a a twin recruitment track running at the moment. There's there's the first team signings that they're looking to make, but also these these exciting young players that they feel are good bets for the future. Carl, let's talk about some of the other contenders then for the Champions League. Liverpool have perhaps produced the most eye-catching capture so far with the signing of Cody Gakpo. As we mentioned, we might see him later on. And it seems like Antonio Conte is making the most noise about new recruits. Some really, really surprising and quite alarming comments after the defeat to Aston Villa. But is he going to get what he wants? This feels like something Antonio Conte has done quite often last season. Spurs got themselves out of a hole by bringing Kulovsky, and it's very hard to to think they can pull off a similar deal. Spurs managed to get that because, well, Patricia and Conte know Juventus quite well, and probably had a good eye on who who might be good and could be uh, siphoned away quite quickly. Whereas I'm not sure they can repeat the trick this time. The thing about Spurs that I find quite curious is they've they spent a lot of money on Basuma in the summer. But their central midfield is very much the same. Hoiberg, Skip, Basuma, Bentacore, these are all tough tackling, box-to-box players who aren't really the best in terms of passing into the final third or you know, scoring. You know, Hoiberg scoring some goals this season has been quite a nice surprise, but when Kulovsky isn't there, there's very little to connect that midfield to their attack. So they need the central midfielder there. I think they also probably need a ball-playing centre-back because... Uh, Davinson Sanchez hasn't quite kicked on and played in the way you'd expect an Ajax centre-back to kick on. Uh, and their wing-back situation is downright baffling to me. It seems like Conte doesn't really like DJ Spence. So th- they're a very big shrug. And a, what what were you doing when you watched Tottenham Hotspur at the moment? What about Newcastle, David, just to wrap things up? Um, there's funds there, we understand. But how likely do you think they are to to spend them this month? Yeah, I don't think it's going to be a prolific spend for Newcastle in the market. I think they'll be focused more on the summer. They've spent quite heavily since the takeover, although not outrageously, very intelligently in in my opinion, and they've built really nicely. We hear a lot of suggestions that they'd quite like to bring in a number six if they can uh, find the right player. And obviously there's been an injury to John Joe Shelby, um, blend someone in with Bruno Gimaraes, who's done so well. What a recruit that has proved to be. And then maybe some younger players. They seem under Dan Ashworth to be sort of stocking up the academy, whether it be for Newcastle's future or to trade, which is going to be an important part of Newcastle's business model. But, you know, they're they're in a great position. And clubs have dilemmas right now when they're doing so well, say in the case of Newcastle and Arsenal, do we invest now and, and try and grab the ball by the horns and, and um, crack on to the end of the season and, and make a, a really big push for you know unexpected Champions League qualification in the case of Newcastle or an unexpected league title in the case of Arsenal? In Arsenal's, they're obviously at a different sort of part of their journey to, and a different level of expectation to Newcastle. And so I think 
the Cronkies do want to back Arsenal with one or two players to really try and see out this title or top two, top four place return to the Champions League. Newcastle are probably or definitely ahead of schedule and you've got to weigh up whether it's wise to start jet propelling the project now. Are they ready for it? Um, has it come a bit too early? Do they want to continue to build organically? They haven't really signed star names and Eddie Howe's really keen on on the characters and on what fits in for him and his players and, and the journey that they're on. And so I think it, it will, famous last words, be a relatively low-key month for, for Newcastle. Let's watch this space on, on the number six position and, and the younger players. And then I'm sure they'll reassess things again in the summer. And that's when you might see a more concerted um push in the market okay lots going on thank you you three for joining us of course and remember for comprehensive coverage in this january transfer window along with our daily podcast you can subscribe to the athletic for one pound 99 a month for the first 12 months just head to the athletic.com forward slash football pod we'll be back tomorrow with more see you then bye-bye the athletic